0: of the book of Romans. So the book of Romans will be in chapter one. We got as far as verse 17 last time, so we're going to pick it up at verse 18. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll slip you a Bible. There's some on the front platform. We're glad that you're here this morning. Very important section of the book of Romans that we are in this morning. Probably a section that doesn't get taught a lot in the church today, but... As we have seen in our study of Romans, uh, opening this study up a couple weeks ago, that Paul, at the the conclusion of his third missionary journey, is in the city of Corinth. And he writes this letter to the Christians in Rome. Again, of course, he's inspired by the Spirit of God to write these words. And after he identifies himself as the writer of this letter, he's given his salutation, his greeting to them. I've been called separate to the gospel of God, he says. And even though he at this time had never been to the city of Rome, he knew some of the Christians there. As we know that at the end of the book, he's going to greet some personally over two dozen people um, as he gives their greetings to them. He had heard about their faith that was spoken of throughout the whole world, and he was thankful for them. He prayed for them. He wanted to come to them. But he writes that at this time he was hindered. And so concerning the gospel, as as he begins to write to them, uh, the whole theme of the book of Romans being in verses 16 and 17. I'll read it to you once again, because this is the theme of which the, the book of Romans is built upon. For he writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And as we discussed last week and last week with the weather being bad, if if you weren't here for that lesson, I would encourage you to download it, listen to it. It's on our website. But as we were looking at this, we discovered and talked about how the gospel, first of all, is to be proclaimed. He writes that I'm a debtor to all to preach this gospel, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And it is my prayer, my hope for all of us here at Calvary Chapel, that we would never, ever be ashamed of the gospel, that we would never be ashamed or apologize for the truth of God's word. Secondly, there is power in the gospel. It is the power to save a person, to bring forgiveness, to, to make a person new, to give them a new heart, to make us alive spiritually. Thirdly, there's provision in the gospel. We are declared righteous, verse 17. It is the righteousness of God through faith. The righteousness of God is revealed. It's that Greek word apocalypse. It is revealed from faith to faith. You see, it's not faith in ourselves. It's not faith in our own efforts. It's not faith in our good works. It's not faith in religiousness. It is faith in the one who came and died on Calvary's cross for you and for me and made atonement on that cross for us sins. So the gospel is available to all that believe and then we finish with the gospel is personal. It is not believing just in philosophies and religion and theology, but the gospel to Paul and to you and to me who have embraced the gospel, it is real. It is believing in the one who is alive, having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And with the theme of Romans given to us, the rest of the book of Romans is connected to these two verses here that I just read, verses 16 and 17. Because what we're going to see now as we continue on, that the Apostle Paul is now going to write to us about the gospel of Christ, he will begin to tell us that all of mankind stands condemned before God, that we are hopeless apart from this gospel of Christ. And what will be presented to us from verse 18 of this chapter here? Through verse 19 of chapter 3 is that every single person who has ever lived or is living or ever will live that we are guilty before God and that we have need for the gospel to be saved we are being told this very directly very plainly that all of us have sinned and so we have a need for the gospel for the savior of the world Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin and for salvation so Paul speaks of this gospel as the power of salvation, verse 16, but we need to recognize that we all have need for salvation in the gospel of Christ. So let's begin to look at that as we read in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So Paul begins to paint this picture of the state of mankind. It's not a pretty picture, it is very dark, it is bleak, because we need to understand that there is bad news before we can receive the good news. And that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And the truth of the state of man is not that we all have good in us. It is not that we will all make it to heaven because we're all children of God. The biggest problem that man has is not global warming. It's not which political party is going to control government next month. The biggest problem that any man or any woman has is that the wrath of God is going to come against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. In other words, God is going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with transgression and iniquity. The Bible tells us that God is... Perfectly righteous, he is holy and he is pure. You might recall, if you're with us in our study of First John, that the Apostle John tells us in his epistle that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is also perfectly just, and God, in his righteousness, will bring judgment and wrath upon all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. So Paul, as he's painting the backdrop here of this picture of the state of mankind, again, it's not. Not pretty, it's not sunshine and rainbows and, and puffy clouds. It is black and it is bleak. Now, there is a difference between ungodliness and unrighteousness. You say, what's the difference? Well, when you read Exodus chapter 20, many of you know the story. Moses goes up on the mountain of God to receive the Ten Commandments. And as you read those Ten commandments, the first four commandments deals with man's relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain, and you are to keep the Sabbath holy. So the violator to break any of these first four commandments constitutes a wrong relationship with God, and that is ungodliness. Now, the next six commandments deals with man's relationship with fellow men. Don't steal. Do not murder. Do not lie. You know, uh, no false witness. Don't covet. And that is unrighteousness. That is, that it is not right towards that person if we violate any of those laws. So ungodliness and unrighteousness will lead to the truth being suppressed. And that word truth here in verse 18 has the Literal meaning to lay hold of, to disregard truth. It's to fight against it, is the whole idea. To hold it down, to keep it down. And I don't have to tell you that we clearly see that in our culture and in our world today, that God's word, which is truth, is being suppressed. People rebel against it, they will fight against it, they replace it with a lie deliberately ignore God's word dismiss it and unfortunately we're even seeing it more and more in the church at large there is a suppressing and a holding down of the truth the dismissing of the truth and keep in mind as we go through this section of Romans that can be hard for some of us to hear that it is God's truth that is being declared to you and to me And it is God that hates sin. He hates what it does. He hates what it brings. It brings death. And he will judge it, but he loves the sinner. And he desires their salvation. And Romans declares to us that this incredible, wonderful good news, the gospel, is available for anyone and to anyone who comes. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So keep that in mind as Paul is giving this dark assessment of mankind that has suppressed the truth as we continue to read in verse 19 because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Romans chapter 1 makes it very clear that creation around us testifies to every man who has ever lived the reality of God. It, first of all, testifies of his power. We've seen that truth in the book of Isaiah on Wednesday nights. That God is coming to his people and he's saying that I am God and there is none other. I am the one that stretched out the heavens and the earth and I have the power to save you from this captivity that's coming from Babylon. I saved you from the Egyptians. I saved you from the Assyrians. And so he's trying to get them to turn back to him, but they were turning to those idols that could not help them. And we're worthless. He says, I'm the creator. I created you for my good pleasures. I've redeemed you. And creation not only testifies of his power, but also testifies of his wisdom. Because there is a design. There is a wonderful, complex design that is absolutely incredible. Don't you see it around us? Of course we do. As you look at plant life and animal life and the different ecosystems and the complexity and diversity of all of it and we look at it, how wonderfully it is made and understand it more how you and I were made and to say that it evolved, that there's no God that created us, As we look around this to see it, and one of the ways that man holds down or suppresses the truth of God is by saying God did not create the heavens and the earth, that the creation account of Genesis is nothing but a big myth, and creation happened by chance by a series of cosmic events and evolutionary processes over billions of years, and now we have creation around us as we know it. There are even whole denominations that are dismissing the first 11 chapters of Genesis, saying that, well, we can't really hold that as God's word. And you see, that is being proclaimed, that there is no God that created the heavens and the earth and taught in every university, in our schools, to our kids, in the museums. Declared that life around us evolved and that there is no God that created the heavens and the earth as we know it. You know, I graduated from a science major at CSU and I remember learning about the different ecosystems and biology and ecology and, you know, dendrochronology and, and all the different, you know, ologies that I had to take. And as I was learning about it, I thought, man, this is amazing. Just how God made plant life in, in the forest and the trees, and I was in natural resource management. And you know, the, the lodgepole pine that we have here in Colorado, that the pine cones are serotonous, that is, they are solid, and they will stay that way. And the only way that they open up to release their seeds is by heat when a fire comes through that area and cleans that area out, that God made it to where those pine cones open up and then they regenerate a new forest. And that's what we see very clearly if you've ever been up in the Yellowstone ecosystem, that those fires, I was up there in 88 when that fire was moving through that lodgepole pine. The beetles came in, killed a bunch of pine trees. The next thing in the ecology in the stage is the fire goes through, cleaned it out, now you have a new forest. And it's healthy. And God made it that way. It was designed that way. Do you think the pine cone evolved by itself that way? No, it didn't. And you're looking at the complexity and diversity of life. And and as you look even at our solar system, there's order. And if you believe the Big Bang, one of the problems that people have is, how did the Big Bang create order? Where there's galaxies and solar systems and suns. And if you take our solar system, you take our planet and the size of the planet and, and the the rotation around the sun and the size of the sun and the nitrogen-oxygen ratio and the water to land mass ratio and, and all these different things, if some of them changed one percent, we would not have life as we know it. And it happened by chance. That's like saying that a tornado goes through a junkyard and creates a 747. So, evolution is something that is pushed today. Somebody gave me this article, it's very fascinating a couple weeks ago about the hummingbird. We all love hummingbirds, don't we? And there's over 300 species of of hummingbirds. And this hummingbird is called, um, the article, uh, creation superhero. But the hummingbird, when it's hovering, you know how the hummingbird hovers, its wings are beating 50 to 80 flaps per second. When it is flying, it increases to as many as 200, you know, flaps per second. That's per second. And the article goes on to say about the metabolism of the hummingbird. The term eat like a bird takes on a new meaning when you consider the fuel required to keep this relentless powerhouse churning for seemingly endless stretches of flight. The metabolism of the hummingbird is the highest among all vertebrates. When active, its heart rate, listen to this, is up to a staggering 1,200 beats per minute while the respiratory rate, even at rest, is up to 250 breaths per minute. To support such breathtaking metabolism, this marvel must eat almost constantly to get the energy needed. Every day it extracts nectar from up to 2,000 flowers. Here's what's interesting. If humans were able to operate at their energy level, we would have to ingest almost 1,300 hamburgers a day just to keep up. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Furthermore, our heartbeat would be 1,260 times a minute, and our body temperature would rise to 385 degrees Celsius. That's 725 degrees Fahrenheit, which we would never reach that temperature because we would all just blow up and (laughs) turn and burst into flames is what would happen. It's true. So... It's interesting, millions and millions of dollars have been unsuccessfully invested in biometric engineering and aeronautics engineering, trying to duplicate how the hummingbird flies because it hovers at 90 degree angles, goes backwards and all of that, wasted their money. Millions of dollars, I have absolutely no idea. And that evolved, the hummingbird. You know, some of us that love to go out fly fishing and stuff, you, you just look at it. I taught my kids how to fly fish, and if you want to be a good fly fisherman, you've got to understand, you know, insect and, and their life cycles and, you know, how the trout eat it, and, you know, from midges to emergers to dry flies to hatches that are happening. It's, it's all connected together. And it's all wonderfully made by the Lord, the God of the universe. And I think Christians get duped into thinking that they have to assassinate you know, your brain just to believe in the creation account of Genesis that it's only good science if you support evolution. And that is not true. There is good science. There is excellent science to support the creation account in Genesis and a worldwide flood. And I would refer you to... <coughs> Answers in Genesis that many of you know, but I get calls all the time that, you know, what's a good source? Answers in Genesis. And there are good scientists. will give you good science about the fossil records, the age of the earth, all these different things, support for a, uh, a worldwide flood that happened. Why do you think that they found a mammoth that they won't tell you a whole lot about, that when they uncovered this mammoth up at the North Pole, it had vegetation in its mouth? That didn't happen over billions of years. Something happened very quickly that they found fossil records, tropical plants in the Sierra Desert in the Antarctica because the world was different before the flood and then the flood happens and the world turns on its axis and the firmament collapses and the waters crumb from underneath and now we have seasons and I can get into it for a long time. We don't have time to talk about it. But don't get duped into thinking that the creation account of Genesis is a myth and don't believe it. God created the heavens and the earth and that's what Paul is saying to us. He's the creator and that the world around us testifies to it and what we do is we teach our kids here at Calvary Chapel, your kids, what the Bible declares and God's truth concerning creation and how wonderful and marvelous God made this world in six days, and it saddens me that more and more Christians and Christian leaders are abandoning you know, that section of the account of Genesis of creation, and God created, And, and maybe he did, but the process got started with evolution, and you have theistic and progressive evolution, and you have the gap theory between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, and the earth was void and without form, and then evolution took place, and then God started creating. There is a big problem with that theory and it's simply this we're going to read later on in the book of Romans that Paul writes the truth that when is sin and death coming to this world when Adam sinned he created first day second day third fourth fifth sixth day said it is good and he told Adam don't eat of that tree if you eat of that tree then you shall surely die Adam didn't know what he was talking about because he'd never seen death And then he ate of that tree, and Paul says, now, because of what Adam did, his sin, death and sin has come into the world. And to say that evolution took place and then God started creating is to say that God brought death to this world. And it doesn't hold up to the gospel. And we need to understand all of that. What the Bible says is true from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. David would write in Psalm nineteen the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork, and day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge, and there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So to every language and to every culture and to every society throughout history the heavens speak loudly, there is a creator who is infinitely powerful to make the heavens and the earth. And he's infinitely wise to design what we see all around us, which is so incredible. And I want you to remember this, that the Bible says that you are the crowning jewel of his creation. Do you know that? He knew all about you before you were even born, before the worlds were formed. And he brought you to this place on this morning in October of 2018 to tell you that you are important to him. And even as Isaiah says that he knows the stars by name, he knows you by name. You might be here and you may be thinking, nobody knows me, but he does. And you're the crowning jewel of his creation. And you were created for his good pleasures to bring glory to him. You are his workmanship. Poem is the Greek word where we get our word poem. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, whenever you write a poem or, you you know, it's heartfelt. He has a heart for you. And he wants to save you. And he wants your life to count. He wants to use you. He wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. He wants to have relationship with you and fellowship with you. And it's possible through Jesus Christ. And as we continue in verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, verse 22. So the rule out, God is a stance of a fool. For the fool has said in his heart, David wrote in Psalm 53, the fool has said there is no God. And to try to understand the universe apart from God is impossible without getting into all kinds of foolish theories and speculations and all of this. Speaking of foolish theories, uh, I read this to you not long ago, a couple of months ago uh, in our Isaiah study. So please forgive me if you heard this. For being redundant, but I think it's worth mentioning it to the rest of you uh, because it's very much applicable to what we're talking about. There's an article that came out two years ago, September 2016. Here's what the article reads. In a note to clients out Tuesday, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, we've all heard of them, haven't we, said that there's a 20 to 50 percent chance, 50 percent chance that we're living in the matrix meaning that the world we experience as real is actually just a simulation. The article goes on to say that many, not a few, but many scientists, philosophers, and business leaders believe that there is a 20 to 50% probability that humans are already living in a computer-simulated virtual world. Researchers gathered at the American Museum of Natural History to debate this notion. The argument is that we are already approaching a photorealistic 3D simulations that millions of people can simultaneously participate in. It is conceivable, what they concluded. That with the advancement in artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and computing power, members of future civilizations could have decided to run a simulation on their ancestors. So what they are saying is this, is that this is all fake. That we're caught up in some kind of virtual reality and computer program or something that maybe in, in uh, you know, artificial intelligent, um, supreme intelligent beings from somewhere else in the universe, it's just running this, this computer simulation, this matrix, and we're all in it, and it isn't real. And I think, really, many researchers, philosophers, scientists, and I think the stupid things that people will believe in because they won't believe in God, and it's sad There is absolutely no hope in that. And here Paul, he's talking about suppressing that truth. And verse 23 goes on to say, and change the glory of the incorruptible God to an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed Animals and creeping things, and interesting what Paul is telling us. God has shown to everyone that He exists through His creation. No one's without excuse, but the truth of God is suppressed, and they don't glorify God. They're not thankful for what He has done on our behalf. I can't understand why people get so hostile to the gospel rather than being thankful. But when you suppress and reject the truth, you're not wanting to answer to God to be obedient to God. And Jesus made that clear in John chapter 3. Jesus said, This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. So those who reject the truth, wanting to be in darkness so they can do their own things, still have an innate need to worship. God made us with the soul, and made us to where we have this need to worship. On every corner of the planet and every culture throughout history, man has a need to worship. So they changed the image of the incorruptible God to the image of corruptible man. This idol will be my God. This image of a four-footed animal or, you know, creeping things and the idols and things that people are really into today, they're pretty creepy. Creepy they profess to be wise but they are fools and we have seen that very clearly again on Wednesday night that being addressed 2700 years ago as the lord is addressing it to his people saying the foolishness the pleading with them the stupidity the insanity of worshipping those idols they cannot help you they won't help you they're a burden to you they are worthless and i'm the one that brought you out of egypt Turn to me. I'm the one that has redeemed you. I have a wonderful plan for you. I have the power to protect you, to bless you, to do a wonderful work in your midst. So Romans chapter 1 is showing us that man's refusal to acknowledge and glorify God leads to a downward path, suppressing the truth of God, revelation of himself, leads to then religious stupidity, worshiping worthless things, and then it leads to moral depravity, verse 24. Verse 24. Therefore, God has also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, when the truth is suppressed, you deny that there is a glorious God that made heaven and earth. You begin to worship the creation rather than the Creator. Do you find nature rather than worshiping the God who created nature? Things like Wicca, which is a fast-growing belief of of young women, particularly in our nation, that is growing um, at a rapid pace. Worshiping Mother Earth, worshiping the things in the earth, the trees, the animals, things like that. Eastern philosophies and religions where they they worship, you know, things and animals and stuff like that in their philosophies, and we're not going to eat the cow because it could be grandma that was, you know, reincarnated or whatever the case may be. Cows were created to be eaten. That's all there is to it. So that's what happens. And it, it happens to the extreme where people are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't like animals or enjoy nature or we should not not take care of our environment. Of course we should, but keep it in perspective. And when we start to believe that God is in the trees and in the bushes and in the animals, which, you know, is embraced by, by many of the New Age and Wicca and Eastern religions, there's a problem, and then including idol worship, which is worshiping, listen, anything in place of God. An idol is not just a statue that's on the mantle or a little shrine that you have in your home. An idol is anything or anyone that you love, that you turn to, that you believe in, that really motivates you in life, and that you trust in more than the Lord. There's a lot of idols. It can be money, it can be greed, possessions, power, self, Everybody believes in something. We're going to worship something. Remember some of us older, the old Bob Dylan song? Everybody's going to worship something, and it's true. And many have and do exchange the truth of God, notice, for the lie. Notice not a lie, but for the lie. And what is the lie? That I can live apart from God. That I can live apart from the true and living God, which he has declared to be who he is in his word, that I can exist without God, that that I can exist apart from my belief in Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can have eternal life apart from him and the one who died for me on Calvary's cross. It's interesting that, you know, the lie here is used one other time in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 concerning when the antichrist comes along and he sets himself as god up in the temple of god to be worship as god and we're going to see that strong delusion is given to those who turn to him by his lying signs and wonders and they believe the lie is what paul writes that he is in replacement of god and that's really what paul is saying there's a replacement of the true and living god make god in your own image and we see that happening don't we and he continues saying in verse 26 For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burn in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. We live in a society, we live in a culture that no longer is driven by morals or logic, but today we are motivated and driven by our lust. Many of the laws that are made today, many of the philosophies that are followed, much of what people try to embracing culture and the current trends. It's not about morals or logic. Decisions are made so that people's lusts can be fulfilled. We see it on the TV shows, the reality shows, the sitcoms, the movies, and it's terrible. And we need to understand something, folks. That God throughout his word from Genesis to Revelation has declared that there is sexual sin. There is heterosexual sin and he declares in his word very clearly just as he's doing here in Romans chapter one that there's homosexual sin. Homosexual sin is sin against God and it is sin against nature. Look at verse 26. Exchanging the natural use for what is against nature. Men leaving the natural use of the woman and it is tragic that we are seeing in the church today and I say this really with a broken heart and I say this with a concerned heart that the church which is supposed to be a voice for God but what we are seeing is more and more denominations and independent churches are accepting any kind of immorality it's okay if, if, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend live together in sin. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to make you accountable. We're not going to say anything. How more and more accepting homosexuality as not being sin. It's okay. Go ahead and live that way. And the church more is winking at sin, and the church at large is becoming morally bankrupt. And our culture is becoming more spiritually out of control. And the world is telling us and even some in the church that stand on God's word to shut up and you be quiet and you need to celebrate sin and you need to call what is evil good and if you don't you're hateful and you're intolerable and I want to say this that we teach God's word with love here And if you are involved in any kind of sexual sin, God is calling you to repent from it. It's amazing how many couples, men and women, think it's okay for them to live together outside of marriage and be sexually active, that God doesn't care, he does care. How many are saying that it's okay to live that homosexual lifestyle? And God says it is sin. And we see the consequences that are happening that are very great. Do you realize that on this day, today in our nation, that 55,000 people will contract a sexually transmitted disease in one day? Which, by the way, is over 20 million people a year in our nation. There are over 30 STDs or STIs that there's no treatment for. 80% of those who have herpes have no idea that they have it. Oh, I got a lot more statistics. You can look them up yourself. The consequences of what's happening to a culture that says you can do whatever it is that you want. We don't live by our morals. We're going to live by our lusts. And not only the physical consequences, but the emotional devastation that it brings. And I want to say this to all of us. That God has called us to live in purity. And for you who are single, and particularly you who are young, to keep yourself pure till your wedding day is a great, great thing in the eyes of God. And you young ladies, you wait for a young man that's going to come along and lead you in that way. That's going to lead you spiritually, it's going to protect you. And if he tries to pull you into any kind of immorality, that's not showing love to you. He may say it is. But it is lust in him fulfilling his lust. <clears throat> and young men, listen. If you are developing a relationship with a young woman, a young girl, you make sure that purity is something that you hold to and you lead in that. And you make sure that you are leading in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And husband and wife, to be faithful to your spouse is a great, great thing in the eyes of God. But you see, that even that's being laughed at as we're seeing the tra- tragic consequences of sin. Pornography that is rampant and the, the marriages that it destroys and, and prostitution and, you know, sex trafficking. It is a huge problem that is destroying families and it's destroying our nation and it's even destroying the church. And we all look at it and we grieve. And you think that we would look at it and people would repent and seek God, but just the opposite is true. In verse 28, they don't want to retain God in their knowledge. So God gave them over to a depraved mind, which speaks of a mind that cannot form right judgment. People have given themselves over to sin. And in verse 29 here in um, through 31, he lists 24 very specific sins. You can read those. Maybe I'll read them. Being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God violent, proud, verse 30 here, boasters, and inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Does this remind you of something? Does it ring a bell? 2 Timothy chapter 3. In the last days there will be perilous times and men will be what? Lovers of self. They will be haters of good. The, the sins that are listed there that Paul says in the last days is going to characterize the state of our culture is being listed here. Same, unforgiving, unmerciful who knowing the righteousness, verse 32, judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also prove of those who practice them. Those who are saying it's okay, go out and sin and live any way that you want. God, we see that knowing that the judgment of God is going to come to all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, deserving of death. Now, this is a heavy message. I know it is. And Paul is writing in the city of Corinth that was a very dark city. It was spiritually and morally very, very dark in Corinth. To be called a Corinthian 2,000 years ago was a very derogatory term. It meant that you were an idol worshiper and that you were morally you know, bankrupt. You were a drunkard. There was such sin and darkness in the city of Corinth. And Paul, when he's writing his first letter to them, listen, and then we're going to finish up. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice such things habitually continue in those sins. But here's the good news. And he says, but such for some of you. I want to close with this. There's so much talk in the church today. How do we reach our culture? How do we reach our young people? How do we, you know, reach other people? It's very simple. Paul comes cruising in the Corinth and he says that when I came to you, I came with much fear and trembling and I didn't come in the demonstration or that isn't the power of man's wisdom. I came in the demonstration, the power of the spirit preaching nothing to you, but listen Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we give to everyone. That's what we give to all. Heterosexual, homosexual, whoever it might be. There is good news. You know, people say, well, I was born this way. I have a tendency this way. We're all born sinners. That's why we need the gospel. And for anybody who's here, you're sitting here going, well, you know, I'm glad I'm not that way. And I'm not involved in those things. Well, we'll get to you next week, all right? Because he's going to address the self-righteous man that thinks he's okay. Listen, here's the good news. If you've never come to Jesus Christ, he's calling you to come to himself, to repent and turn away from the direction you're going and turn away from sin. And come to him, the one who died for you, because he loves you. Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's no other sacrifice for sin. There's no other hope for salvation. There's no other way of forgiveness of sin. He loves you. That's why he came to die for you specifically. I don't care where you're at, what you have done. The gospel is for everyone who believes. And it is the power of God for salvation. And he's calling you today. And sometimes people will say, well, maybe I'll think about, make the decision later. Today is the day of salvation. Come to him. Turn to him. He loves you. And he's provided forgiveness. And he's provided eternal life and right relationship with the Father. It's only through Jesus Christ who loves you so much. But he's calling you to turn away, to repent and turn to him. And if that means anyone to anyone at this service, if you're listening on live stream or later on the radio or here in the sanctuary or out in a coffee shop that's packed out, give your life to Jesus Christ. He is your hope. He is your only hope. And he's calling you right now. So Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. And I thank you that we get to proclaim it as through your word. And it is for anyone and everyone who believes. I thank you for your love that is unfailing. But you are a righteous God. And you will judge all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. But may we keep in mind that Jesus, for those of us who are in Christ, took the judgment for us. And I pray that you would realize, if you've never come to Jesus, that he did it for you as well. And it is from faith to faith, for the just shall live by faith. It is coming in faith and understanding that you're a sinner and need to be saved and forgiven, the greatest deed of any man or any woman. And you come to the cross and you surrender your life to Jesus. You see, he rose from the grave. That's what makes Christianity unique. All other religious leaders, they're still in the grave, but there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And he proved, as Paul writes in chapter one here, that he's the son of God and validated what he did on Calvary's cross. Will you come to him and call out to him? There is forgiveness. He created you to have fellowship with you, to forgive you, to have right relationship with the Father. You can do that right now, right in your heart sincerely. You can pray, Jesus, I come to you. I'm a sinner. And I need you. I turn to you. I repent. And I turn to you. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you died on that cross for me. Forgive me. That you rose again in your life, speaking to my heart. And now I make this my gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I want to walk with you. I want to know you. And Lord, I want to be filled with your love and spirit. Help me to live a life pleasing for you. And thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name. And listen, while we're being respectful, I know I can just see those in the sanctuary, but even out in the coffee shop or maybe you're listening on live stream or on the radio later. But for now, for you here, if you prayed that prayer, will you do me a favor? Will you put your hand up and put it back down? Just God bless you. Anybody else at all? Lord, maybe I don't see others that are making the decision, but I I thank you for that. And I thank you for those who have made decisions this morning for you coming to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, maybe those that I don't know, they've been listening or are going to listen. So Lord, we pray for the power of the gospel, for a great awakening in our church for this community and not be ashamed of it. Father, I do pray for all of us here that we would stand on truth, that we would desire to live a life pleasing to you. I pray for our young people, particularly, that are being lied to, that they can live any way that they want, apart from you, that they would not buy into that lie but live a life for you, Lord. You come to set us free, to give us life and life abundantly. We know that the world will just put us in bondage or anyone in bondage, in confusion and despair and defeat because the world is a big ripoff and a lie. So I pray for our young people to stand on your truth and that we would encourage them that you have a wonderful plan for them and for all of us. Keep our marriages strong, faithful to our spouses. Lord, not to set any evil thing on our eyes that's all around us, Lord. We want to be washed with the water of the word and renew our minds that we may know what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. I pray you bless everyone here now as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said.